Imagine I have a beautiful tree that's filled with oranges. And I ask myself, what is the orange made of? How do I answer that question? Well, I want to look deeply inside the orange, so I magnify it. And I magnify it again, and if I keep on doing it, deep inside, sooner or later, I begin to see molecules come into view. But molecules are not the end of the story because the molecules, I can enlarge them. And if I make them big enough deep inside, I begin to see atoms. Atoms are not the end of the story too because we have electrons zooming around the nucleus, deep inside, mostly empty space in the atom, but deep inside, we see the nucleus. So if I grab that and magnify it, I see that the nucleus is itself made of particles, neutrons and protons. And if I grab one of the neutrons and magnify it, I find yet further particles, little tiny quarks inside. Now that is where the conventional ideas stop. String theory comes along and suggests that inside these particles there is something else. So if I take a little quark and I magnify it, Conventional idea says there's nothing inside, but string theory says I'll find a little tiny filament, a little filament of energy, a little string-like filament. And just like the string on a violin, I pluck it and it vibrates, creates a little musical note that I can hear. The little strings in string theory, when they vibrate, they don't produce musical notes, they produce the particles themselves. So a quark is nothing but a string vibrating in one pattern. An electron is nothing but a string vibrating in a different pattern. A neutrino, nothing but a string vibrating in a different pattern still. So if I take all of this back together, I have my ordinary orange, and if these ideas are right, they are speculative, but if they are right, deep inside the orange or any other piece of matter is nothing but a dancing, vibrating cosmic symphony of strings. That's the basic idea of string theory. Psalm 19.1 says that the heavens are telling of the glory of God and the expanse shows his handiwork. This is Good Heavens, a podcast taking a deeper look at the glory of God reflected in the stars above us. Here is your host, Daniel Ray. Our introduction of Good Heavens this week features physicist Dr. Brian Greene, one of the leading proponents of string theory. As you heard, string theory is a theory about the smallest of the small. If you cut up any physical object down to its tiniest indivisible components, what would you find? Physics of the last century has taken us down quite a rabbit hole into the realm of the very small. Beyond the atom, into the subatomic world of quarks, gluons, leptons, bosons, and on and on and on. Is there anything smaller than what physicists have discovered? Our guest this week on Good Heavens, Dr. Tom Redelius, thinks there is. 
Tom's area of expertise is in string theory. He believes, as other string theorists do, that there exists beyond the subatomic realm tiny, very tiny, string-like filaments that vibrate, giving shape to the quarks and other particles. Tom is also a follower of Christ. He sees string theory as fully compatible with the Christian worldview. But if you don't agree with string theory or know next to nothing about it, come along anyway and hear Tom's remarkable testimony and how he sees the intersection of cutting-edge physics and his faith in Jesus. As Psalm 111 begins, quote, Praise the Lord. I will give thanks to the Lord with all my heart in the company of the upright and in the assembly. Great are the works of the Lord. They are studied by all who delight in them. Splendid and majestic is his work, and his righteousness endures forever. He has made his wonders to be remembered. The Lord is gracious and compassionate. End quote. Tom Redelius. I do string theory, quantum field theory, and early universe cosmology. I uh, studied physics and mathematics uh, as an undergraduate at Cornell. I did my doctorate in physics at Harvard. And since then, I have been a postdoc at the Institute for Advanced Study in Princeton. And I just started my second postdoc at the University of California, Berkeley. So I... Uh, was not raised in a Christian family, or more accurately, I was raised in sort of a very nominally Christian family where we went to, uh, or we, sorry, we opened presents on Christmas and we had chocolate bunnies on Easter, but my family never went to church. I never read the Bible and really didn't know too much about Christianity at all growing up. So I actually came to faith in college. Most of that was through conversations with my twin brother who had come to faith a little bit before I did. Uh, but also I had sort of a unique uh, conversion experience. I applied for some internships after my uh, going into my sophomore summer, and I got a conditional offer from the National Security Agency contingent upon completing a polygraph. Hmm. And my feelings towards that were, were always pretty similar to my feelings towards religion, which is I'm basically a good person. I haven't done anything seriously wrong. Hmm. And I figured I'd be fine. But I went in, I started failing the test, and I realized pretty quickly that I was going to continue to fail this polygraph, not only if I were lying, but just if I felt guilty about anything. <laughs> wow. So for about four hours, I shared everything I th could think of that I'd done wrong in my life. And for the wow. first time, I started to appreciate, wow, you know, deep down, I'm not actually such a good person after all. Uh, oh, wow. You know, below my, my resume and, and my general being a nice guyness. I uh, I realized, like, you know, I, I'm a pretty broken person, too. Mm. Uh, I've done a lot of things I'm not proud of. And for the first time, the, the good news message that my brother had been sharing with me about forgiveness through Jesus' death on the cross started to make sense to me, not just at an intellectual level, but also at a personal level. Wow. And so for the first time, Christianity really started wow. to make sense of my story and the story of the world around me. That's fantastic. Yeah, yeah. So that was uh, just over 10 years ago now. So that was sort of the day I became a Christian. Wow. Congratulations. <laughs> yeah, thanks. Yeah. Yeah, it's been a it's been a it's been a good 10 years, I guess. It's it's actually something that too also you asked about how I got into physics and I think that that actually was a big part of it. So as a as a college student the rest of the way uh, after I became a Christian my sophomore year I started to think a lot more about some of these these bigger questions of 
meaning and purpose and the universe. And I think that there are lots of good fields to study those sorts of questions in, of course, theology and philosophy. But uh, given my scientific background and my mathematics background, to me, the questions of the what are the fundamental laws of nature of the universe started to seem like a more interesting question. And so, uh, in at least in part due to that, I ended up becoming more interested in that and ultimately pursuing a doctorate in physics, and uh, the rest is history, as they say. Fantastic. Um, I don't know if you follow or know Dr. Sarah Salviander on Twitter. I think I do follow her, yeah. She came to Christ through her study in astrophysics. She was an atheist, but she has a very similar story to you and your brother. She was contemplating Christianity and was afraid to tell her brother. And uh, one day she finally just did, and her brother says to her, well, what took you so long? And then her brother and her, both raised in a sort of an atheistic, secular household, um, both came to Christ at the same time. So it was kind of remarkable. But it was the physics that got Sarah uh, to to become a follower of Christ. Uh, she she She's a black hole specialist. So it's it's remarkable to me to see people, I mean, this is just one of my favorite things, to talk about people who are in the cutting-edge fields of astrophysics and physics, and who are also fundamentally convicted of the truth of, of Christianity. I just love the convergence. And there are so many atheists. I mean, if you've been on Twitter, you know the, the sort of memish rhetoric is that science and Christianity are incompatible. There's no way you could be a cutting-edge, Ivy League-trained doctor and believe in Jesus. This just seems anathema. Do you find that to be the case in the fields in which you— um, work, Tom? I think it, it is true that most of my colleagues aren't all that religious. And what I found is that I think in large part religion is sort of just dis- dismissed as this uh, as this unnecessary thing or as something that, you know, pe- people people in our profession just aren't a part of. Mm-hmm. And it's, yeah, I think on, on the one hand, I would say that I'm, I'm thankful in that I don't feel like I've ever been, say, discriminated against or mm. anything like that because of my religion. And, and for the most part, even my atheistic colleagues who, who, who are aware of my faith, I think are very respectful. Mm. And, uh, and I do appreciate that. Yeah. But but I also just think that it's a that there are, it's a set of questions that even some of the very very intelligent people I work with haven't really spent too much time looking into or pondering or thinking about too much. Okay. So it's more it, you don't see in your field um I, and and this seems to be because I want to I, I like to break down the stereotypes. It does seem that that a lot of people you get the impression that that science is is anti-Christian, and there's a lot of vocal atheists and skeptics and non-believers who think that science has become the, a kind of a surrogate replacement for God, if not having disproven God altogether. Um, but yet I find that, uh, like Dr. Luke Barnes, somebody that uh, I've worked with, uh, he he has co-authored two books with his atheist agnostic friend, uh, uh, Geraint Lewis, and, and, and they have a wonderful working relationship as well. So it seems like uh, there is a great deal of people, as you say, who just don't give this God question a whole lot of time, um, respectful to you, but just have not contemplated or thought about 
uh, how these things might go together. You find that to be the case. Uh, so thank you for sharing that. That's a, that's a wonderful insight. So uh, let's talk about how you um, how, let's talk about your theory that that you've embraced uh, because. I am I am a layperson when it comes to string theory. Of course, like probably ninety five percent of my listeners, there are some people that could probably track with you on this. Um, but this is a relatively new theory in the field of physics. The last hundred years or so, I guess, or maybe even younger than that. You could help me out with that. But uh, we're dealing with something at the extremely small levels, right? We're going beyond quarks. We're going beyond subatomic particles. We're going way down to something that is infinitely beyond our ability to measure. And so what was it about string theory? Maybe you can just explain briefly for, for lay people what string theory is, and then precisely why you got involved in this particular aspect of, of this theory, why this interested you. Sure. So string theory, as you said, is, is a relatively new theory. A lot of the ideas go back to the middle of the 20th century, though it really took off in the 90s with the so-called second superstring revolution. The idea behind string theory is that the entire world is made up of tiny little vibrating strings. So in sort of the old way of thinking about things, the, the particle physics way, we tend to think of these subatomic particles like electrons or photons or things like these as being just points in space. So they travel through time, but they don't have any spatial extent. So they're, they're just a point in space. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. The idea behind string theory is that, in fact, all of these things that we used to think of as particles are actually strings. And a string just is something that has a length. So it's not just a point in space. It has some tiny little length. Okay. And... This, these strings are so tiny, the length is so small, that we can't even observe it experimentally. And this mm -hmm. is what makes string theory sort of uh, on the boundary between science and philosophy and leads to uh, a lot of skepticism from uh, some more sort of conventional scientists because it's not something for which we have any direct experimental evidence. Okay. But it's... Uh, useful, and the reason why we why we think that our world might actually be made up of all these little strings is that string theory is the only theory we know of that successfully reconciles the incompatibility between quantum mechanics and general relativity, which is Einstein's theory of gravity. So quantum mechanics works very well for describing the physics of very small things, General relativity works very well for describing the physics of very heavy things, but there really there isn't a theory that we know of that successfully describes the physics of things that are both tiny and heavy, so very small and also very energetic. And the only theory that we know of that does that successfully is string theory. Hmm. So as of today, string theory is really the only game in town for a consistent quantum theory of gravity, which is really what we're after. Now, how did I get into this, or why, why does this interest me? Well, modern studies of string theory, uh, first of all, require a lot of mathematics. And so just from a more practical perspective, I had a rather strong math background uh -huh. my, uh, as a math major in college. Got it. 
from a larger perspective of why would I choose to study this as opposed to something else, I think that, as I said, the question that really got me interested in all of this were questions about the fundamental laws of nature, and especially some of the the more theologically theologically relevant questions like mm. the origin of the universe and the fine-tuning of the universe, mm. which are the topics, incidentally, that I know Luke Barnes has written his books on. Yeah, yeah. Uh, these sorts of questions were things I wanted to be able to understand better as a physicist and so, as a, so to sort of be an expert on these topics. And so thinking about those sorts of questions is what got me interested in string theory and early universe cosmology as opposed to other fields of science. Excellent. Excellent. Thank you for, for sharing all that. Um, now, string theory, I do understand. There have been different variations of this as it's developed since the mid-20th century. Uh, and, and one thing that I've heard just in my own popular reading of it, uh, especially I actually watched a, a Brian Greene video in preparation for our, uh, our interview. And uh, one of the things that, that interested me and, and fascinates me is that the mathematics of string theory, people say it doesn't predict anything, which is, it seems to be that that's not entirely true because it does predict, uh, or you can help me understand this, the mathematics that are involved in string theory only work if there are extra dimensions to our existing cosmos as we understand it. So uh, I know that there have been theories where originally when it was... uh, uh, Theodore uh, Kaluza, back in the early nineteen, uh, early twentieth century, he posited a fourth dimension, and then as the theory grew, there were twenty-six dimensions, and then ten dimensions, and then maybe it's back down to five or something like that. But it seems that that one of these things, the one of the reasons that people balk at this, is because of these extra dimensions that we can't conceivably test. And so it, it, can you explain a little bit about this extra dimensionality uh, to string theory and, and why that's important? As you said, mathematical consistency of the theory requires you to have these additional dimensions. So uh, as you say, there are different versions of string theory, so different uh, di- different theories that have been discovered, and they differ in the number of dimensions. So, so bosonic string theory requires 26 dimensions, which is 25 of space, one of time. Uh, the heterotic string theory and the type one and type two string theories that uh, we tend to study more today require nine dimensions of space and one dimension of time. So there are these different theories. They have these different numbers of, of dimensions of space-time. And as you say, this can be a little... Uh, off-putting for some people. You may have wished as a scientific theory that this that these extra dimensions would be things that you could go out and measure. But the idea behind string theory, the reason why we haven't actually observed these extra dimensions, is that we expect that these things are very, very tiny. So just like the strings that I mentioned, these things are, are curled up, very small. And there's an analogy that's sort of useful for understanding this which is uh, you can imagine, say, like a garden hose. And if you look from far away, a garden hose looks like it's just one-dimensional because it just is this long thing, and so it has, it has a length. But if you get up really close, say if you were an ant living on the surface of the garden hose, you would realize that it's actually two-dimensional because you can walk oh. along the length of the hose 
but you could also wrap around its circumference. Yeah, that's a good point. And so that's the idea with these extra six dimensions of, of, of the type two string theory, that is the idea is that these things are curled up so tiny that we can't actually see them. And so, again, yeah, as a scientist, you might say, well, if we can't see them, why should we believe that these things are there? But as you mentioned, the reason why we posit these things is really for mathematical consistency of the theory. It just doesn't make, the theory doesn't make sense without these extra dimensions. Hmm. And that may, I think something that people, uh, you know, you, you might say, you know, I have, I have enough trouble visualizing things in three dimensions, let alone 10. <laughs> and so it can be intimidating, I think, for someone who doesn't work in string theory to, to, you know, try to visualize these things and try to understand, you know, how do you, how do you people actually work in these numbers of dimensions? But what you need to realize is that, you know, I'm no better at visualizing four or 10 dimensions as you are, Daniel. But <laughs> even if, just because I can't visualize it doesn't mean that the mathematics don't make sense. Sure. And really what is, what is remarkable about string theory? And the reason why many of my colleagues think that string theory really is the only game in town as far as a consistent quantum theory of gravity is that it really takes a lot of mathematical miracles for it to all work out in the mm. end. Mm. Uh, it's it's sort of highly non-trivial to try to put together quantum mechanics and general relativity in a consistent way. And people have tried for for many, many years, and sort of it, what happens is that the mathematics, in a sense, almost just forces you into something like string theory. Wow. So it's interesting. You bring up a couple of things here, Tom, the... The idea of a uh, mathematical miracle. And the other aspect about extra dimensionality to me raises this question that has intrigued me for, for a long time. So you have theorists like Sean Carroll, who has recently endorsed uh, Hugh Everett's many worlds interpretation. Uh, yeah. You have a, a popularity, a variety of multiverse theories where. You know, prior to our the origin of our universe, there's cyclical space time or the the Hawking Hartle model, or so many different models. I think uh, Sean Carroll, in his debate with Bill Craig several years ago, uh, came up with uh, he just Google searched and there's like sixteen or seventeen different eternal models of eternal cosmologies. So you have this idea of miracles of mathematics uh, of of extra dimensions. And, and and this idea of eternity or, or infinity. A lot of the problems with string theory early on seemed to be that the mathematics was leading people to infinities, which makes mathematics uh, <laughs> tricky at best. <laughs> when you get a lot of sideways eights in your equation, you're like, oh, what, what's the use? But it seems like we're getting at something here that's like mathematics. It's like Roger Penrose thinks that mathematics is belongs into a sort of platonic realm of its own, that it has its own existence. And, and you bring up this idea of miracles, and, and a lot of theoretical physicists and cosmologists are bringing up this idea of infinities and eternities. And it seems like when you talk about extra dimensions, it's, it's allowable so long as you don't mention God or sometimes or somehow all of a sudden spiritualize this idea of, of there being a heaven or there being a God or there being a spiritual dimension. Do you do you see do you think the uncomfortability with with dimensionality eternity eternality and, and and miracles and all this stuff do you think there's a, a close correlation between people being uncomfortable with extra dimensions 
or it just seems to be too metaphysical, uh, too much like, uh, you know, the Big Bang, and maybe that shows that God exists somehow that, that fits Genesis. Do you think there's that the, the people are generally uncomfortable with the metaphysical aspects of, of, of what string theory is suggesting? Yeah, so you, you raise a lot of... Uh lot of interesting points there. <laughs> um, I think indeed, I think indeed, you know, there's a, there's a pretty wide array of, of beliefs on string theory, m- much, much like there is on these questions of God. And, mm-hmm. um, you know, I, I run into fairly often this idea that string theory really isn't, isn't science as I said, because, you know, it's not something we can go out and test experimentally. It's, it's just all this theoretical, uh, this theoretical, you know, these equations, this math. Uh-huh. And certainly the, the people that I work with on a daily basis, which who are, who are theoretical physicists, we overwhelmingly understand that, you know, ju- just because we can't go out and measure something just because we can't test string theory experimentally, it it doesn't mean that we can't learn important things Mm. uh, about quantum gravity and even perhaps about our own universe Mm. from considering it. So, you know, we would have loved, we would, we would all love if the world were made in such a way that, that, you know, there's some way that string theory has makes all of these testable predictions and we can go out and test them and then just know that string theory is right. But none of us really had a say in in saying how the world was going to be put together. So, so if this is what, if this is how the world works, if this is wh- how quantum gravity works, then it, this is the best thing that we have to study. We don't really have another option. This is this is sort of the the best we can do in our search for truth. And I think that that's that's what that is pointing to. I think, and I think it's important to understand is that it's not always the case that you can go out and perform tests in, in a laboratory somewhere in your pursuit of truth. Sometimes you need to consider things like metaphysical arguments. Sometimes you need to consider mathematical proofs. And I think that this is, of course, especially relevant for questions of theology, because it may be true that we can't go out and just you know, perform some experiment in a lab and then poof, God shows up. But I think it would be a big mistake to say that therefore we just need to throw up our hands altogether. Science may allow us to have more certainty in the things we believe. You know, we, we have uh, much more certainty, say, in Newton's laws than we do in, uh, I don't know, you know, some, some metaphysical or philosophical idea that people have had because we science gives us these tools to try to batter down these uncertainties and to be really confident in certain in certain aspects of our world and we may not have that when it comes to these religious debates but we still do have good ideas you know there there still are good arguments i think for the truth of christianity and something that is actually especially encouraging to me as a christian is the fact that our faith is founded not just upon pure religious and metaphysical thinking, but also on a historical person and a historical event. And so it's something that we can actually investigate uh, in some ways. And so I, I sometimes like to joke that they really ought to call Christianity a science and, and string theory a religion, because Christianity 
actually make some testable predictions that we can actually go out and measure with hard data. So it, it's, uh, it's, it's fascinating because uh, you bring up something that is so near and dear to my heart that uh, I love the intersection of science and faith. And so often in the popular imagination, you get this idea that uh, in order for something to be scientific or to be scientifically credible, uh, it must be empirically verifiable, testable. And this gets into the philosophies of science. I think a lot of skeptics will, 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 will sort of parrot the idea that everything, that, that God needs to be testable, verifiable, and falsifiable, not realizing that they are echoing a dead philosophy of logical positivism that says the only things that are real are that which, which are empirical. Ideas must be testable. Ideas must be falsifiable. But, of course, the whole philosophy of, of logical positivism could not be verified through empirical science. Uh, and there's a lot of metaphysical and philosophical assumptions that go into the process of science, as you know. And so I, I appreciate what you're saying because there's a lot. If you may, if you just do a, a cursory reading of the last hundred years of of science, there are a lot of metaphysical and philosophical assumptions that made Werner Heisenberg and Paul Dirac scratch their heads and wonder what's going on. And a lot of these times, the, these men take these great epistemic leaps and say, "Well, the math says this. This is truly bizarre, but I'm going to follow it." Uh, Chandra with with uh, white dwarfs, and then the the development of black holes. Sarah in our chapter, she gave a wonderful presentation about. The, the, the epistemological barriers that um, uh, Eddington uh, ran into when they were encountering the mathematics of what became later uh, the idea of black holes. And so there was a lot of unempirical uh, number crunching going on, if you will, uh, at that level. And I, I, see what it, I see a similarity there in what you're talking about with string theory is that you, you, you step out on a theor theoretical limb, you, you trust the mathematics. I mean, this is what Peter Higgs did for like 50 years. He stuck to the math of the boson that was later confirmed just a few years ago. Um, and, and his theory was vindicated after a half century. I mean, you can imagine that's probably why he was crying there in, in, in Geneva <laughs> as he saw his theory come to, to light. But he was letting the mathematics guide him. And that, that is seemingly similar to what I see you're saying, um, that, that, okay, it's a little strange. It's a little weird. We're predicting extra dimensions, but uh, this is what the math says, and this is the only game in town. So could you speak a little bit to your idea of how mathematics is so wonderfully applicable to to the discipline of what you do and the remarkable intuitive, useful, uh, conceptual ideas that mathematics give us uh, in order to understand things. How do, you, how, do you, how do you perceive mathematics? Created, invented? Uh, how do you see it in your field being utilized? To, do, how, I know there's, a, there's a, a back and forth on this, but uh, just your insights into the, wonder, the, the foundational wonders of mathematics. Yeah, so there's, there's been a lot of, of discussion on this. There's this famous book, uh, by Eugene Wigner, the physicist, called The Unreasonable Effectiveness of Mathematics in the Natural Sciences. Um, and, and so it's something that a lot of people have noted is that it's really incredible just that math describes our world. Uh, and, in such a, and in such a complex way, I mean, to, to understand the, the particle physics of, uh, of the Higgs boson, you need to understand group theory. You need to understand Lie groups. You know, you need to understand complex complex analysis 
to understand th string theory, you have to, to know algebraic geometry. It, it's really amazing how many different fields of mathematics show up in, in the physics of our universe. So it, it's really an incredible thing. Uh, I think no matter what your religious background is, that, uh, you know, it, it's just, it, it's incredible that this stuff all works, that, that math actually describes the, the world around us uh, in such an amazing way. So, so how do you, so how does, how does one think about this? So what, what are sort of the, the theological implications? Um, I think there's, there's sort of a, a few different directions you can take this. On the one hand, uh, you know, people like Alvin Plantinga have asked this question, who, who's a, who's a Christian philosopher, have asked the question, uh, uh, or have sort of raised this, this possibility of, does this point to some sort of larger, uh, does this, does this beg some larger explanation, some, uh, something like God to explain this? Because after all, if, you know, if atheism is true, if the world just is the way it is for no reason, it's sort of this bit of cosmic serendipity that the universe actually just follows these, these laws, these mathematical equations. Uh, and with regularity, right, throughout all mm -hmm. of time, as far as we can tell, for, throughout all of space, it, it, it just follows these equations. Mm -hmm. So that's, that's a rather amazing thing. Yes. I, I think where I would go, uh, so if, if I were an atheist, I think what I would say is that the reason why the universe follows these mathematical equations is because, in fact our universe really is nothing more than just pure mathematics. And these laws that are out there don't simply describe our universe. They actually define the world around us. Mm. Now, as a theist, I think that, uh, in fact, the better way to understand our universe is not as some sort of giant mathematical structure, but rather as a cosmic narrative as some sort of larger story in which you you and I are are characters in which which all of humankind are, are characters and we live in this world and we have uh you know we interact with each other we have these notions of causality of cause and effect of free will of consciousness of being moral agents mm. and uh and because that you know it is amazing that the our universe follows these mathematical equations but there's so many of these other features that I just mentioned about our world and about ourselves as humans that we just sort of take for granted. Yes. We've just gotten so used to them that we forget yes. how amazing it is that we actually live in a world where, you know, we, we have the capability to make moral choices, where we seem to live in this world of good and evil, where we uh, seem to have free will. All of these things are, are incredible. Mm -hmm. Even the passage of time, these notions of, of cause and effect are, are not things that, were, that are just obvious from the perspective of the mathematical equations. Yeah. So it raises the question of, of sort of, is our universe more fundamentally just some giant mathematical structure or is it more fundamentally some sort of cosmic narrative? Hmm. And, you know, and there's, there's reasons to believe in both. I tend to think as a theist, I do think that the world is better described as, as more of a cosmic narrative. And I think that these these laws that we see, the, the, this cosmic rationality behind the laws of nature, uh, is just something that that 
is there that you sort of expect in any sort of narrative. You know, there's going to be some sort of some sort of rationality, some sort of rhyme and reason behind the whole the whole behind the whole thing in order for our world to make sense as a place that can sort of uh you know su- support this sort of narrative. Mm. I think that there's though a couple of issues with that view which is that our world seems to lack any sort of overarching purpose. And I think this this is something I sort of expected you to ask me, you know, is how do you, how do I see, you know, how do I maybe see God? How do I see you know, uh these you know, Christianity in in the physics around me. And and to be honest, I, in in many ways, I would say I don't, hmm. because the the world of physics is is sort of this cold, dark place. The you know, we just live here. We have this this habitable planet, which is just incredible here in this vast sea of nothingness. And someday the sun is going to swell up and swallow up the earth, and the whole, whole human race will just be gone. Everything that's ever been done by humans will just be will just vanish. And it raises the question of what, what the, whole, the whole point of this is. And from, a, from an atheistic perspective, if our world is nothing but a mathematical structure, I have no idea what the answer is. Hmm. I don't know how to rationally get a, away from that conclusion. But I think that this is where uh, Christianity really comes into focus. Because I think Jesus shows up in the story and he really is the hero that our story deserves. Hmm. And if Jesus really is, you know, the risen son of God, then it gives our lives and it gives the whole human story a new trajectory and a better ending. Mm. And it really makes sense of this world of makes sense out of this world as a story. And that this is a a story about God coming to our world and redeeming it in restoring his creation and ultimately setting all things right. Mm. So to me, that's where, where actually, to me, when I look at the physical world, it in many ways can be sort of depressing to to realize how small and insignificant we are. But this is where I look at Jesus and realize that if Jesus, you know, if God sent his son to die for us, then that makes us extremely significant. Yes. You know, we may be insignificant in terms of size, in terms of location, but what matters is that we're significant in God's eyes. Yes. And so that's a world and that's a that's a worldview that I can actually live into. Mm-hmm. I don't know how to make sense out of my own life if the world is just this giant mathematical structure yeah. with no deeper meaning and purpose, and it just, you know, we're all just math, you're just math, I'm just math. Mm. But if we're living in this larger story of good and evil, of right and wrong, where our actions have eternal consequences, now this is a world that I can actually live into and a story that I can actually live my life into. Mm. So it it seems like when you study the physics without a theistic perspective, as you say, it can be very uh, depressing, uh, very uh, meaningless, cold, dark, uh, a general vacuity. Um, This idea of uh, conceptually of of the cosmos, you know, the the ancient version of the universe being the heavens, uh, the creation of God versus this uh, this modern concept of of empty space, the void, the the Copernican principle that we've been through a series of uh, demotions, and that now that we know the vastness of the universe that was not made aware to the ancients, somehow we've lost our specialness. And and, and but this idea that 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 modern physics and cosmology has uh, 
has removed a teleological purpose from the specialness of human beings is simply false, as you point out. In Christ becoming a human, he validates and, and gives significance to our humanity by becoming himself a humani- uh, human being all the way down to the first single cell if we understand his development in his mother's womb. He affirms humanity from the first cell uh, all the way to the, to the tomb and then is, uh, you know, as he resurrects and begins creation anew. And uh, so it's really amazing to see how you put that together, that, that finally in Christ uh, it brings physics and mathematics to, to, the, to the proper light in which they were created as Jesus spoke the universe into existence. Of course, mathematics is a language. Do you find, Tom, that for your non-Christian colleagues, do they treat mathematics as having causal properties? Do they believe that the laws and the, the mathematics that they're uncovering and utilizing, that these abstract conceptions and, and equations and, and numerical values and things, do they actually have causal properties in the minds of some of your non-Christian colleagues? Mm. You know, that, that's a good question. I think the answer is yes. Uh, I think the answer is yes, but to be honest, I, I haven't talked to them too much about that question. Oh, okay. Okay. Because it seems like that would be the only alternative if you're not positing ultimately a, a divine causality. Um, I mean, if you go into Aquinas and the, the, even Aristotle and all the way back to to prime movers and first causes, um, I think William Lane Craig was the one who was helpful in helping me to see that numbers as abstract objects can't cause things to happen. But I've always wondered what in the mind of a, of a secular scientist or physicist or whatever, uh, what to what do they ultimately give, you know, what's the ultimate causality for everything? And uh, so it's always been an interesting question of mine. But um, as we're winding down here, I do want to have you explain a little bit more about, um, and we've not really gotten into the meat and potatoes of, of string theory, but but at, at a fundamental level, uh, you explained earlier that these, these are the smallest little things like strings, and it seems like we're almost back to, in my imagination, we're almost back to uh, Pythagoras and developing the, the ratios of, of the tensions between, uh, you know, literal physical strings for stringed instruments and, and the mathematical ratio and the harmony between certain uh, aspects of, of tightening strings, you know, and, and, and music. And so, as I understand it, when we get down to the very small, these strings are what give shape to fundamental particles. Is that correct? So they vibrate at different frequencies and thus create different... Uh, different kinds of particles. Is that accurate? Yeah, that's the idea. And so what we talk about when you talk about um, these properties and particles at that level, the Large Hadron Collider, we have no way at present to to see these things happening. Is that correct? That's right. Yeah. The, the energies that would be required to actually test string theory by by exciting these higher harmonics of these strings, if you will, mm-hmm. uh, would it be far, far greater than anything we can achieve at the Large Hadron Collider? And so th- this is why string theory remains currently untested, is that uh, the, just the energies that re- would be required to test it are just far beyond anything that we humans currently possess and quite probably will ever possess. Hmm. Uh, so the best actual, hmm. actually the best, 
opportunity for testing string theory experimentally in any sort of capacity probably comes not from some particle accelerator like the Large Hadron Collider, Mm. but rather from measurements of the early universe. Mm. Because in the early universe, close to the Big Bang, the energy was was much higher than it is today. The, the temperature of the early universe is far above what it is currently. And the temperature, in fact, was so high that it, that it gets sort of close to the energies that would be required to test string theory. Okay. And so, so probably our best hope for actually deriving some sort of low energy consequences of string theory is through experiments of, of telescopes looking out at the early universe. Okay. And in fact, this is actually what okay. a lot of my research has dealt with. And, and certainly, my, I would say my most influential research has involved using string theory to try to constrain models of the early universe, which would leave some sort of detectable signature in, uh, in these telescope experiments. Excellent. Now, it's hard... Because as we've seen, string theory is very difficult mathematically, mm-hmm. and string theory seems to give rise to this enormous landscape of of possible laws of nature. Mm. And so to, to make any sort of definitive predictions from string theory is difficult. And on the other hand, trying to make measurements of the early universe is very difficult. Yes. Because essentially what these experiments are doing is looking at this... Uh, cosmic microwave background and they're trying to read off the, the little the little noise so you have this big signal from the background and what you need to do to really extract the physics is you need to look at the little bit of noise and you need to subtract from this the the other noise that isn't telling you about the physics that you want so you're sort of <laughs> wow so it's a really really hard experiment to do and uh, it's really impressive that scientists can do can do anything with this yeah. um i think it's definitely among the most impressive uh, scientific achievements is that people can actually learn about the physics of the, you know, just after the Big Bang from studying the cosmic microwave background. But uh, ideally, if we if we had very good measurements of the microwave background and we were better at string theory, we could actually put these two together and uh, and maybe learn some interesting things about our real world from string theory. So you're hopeful that uh, if James Webb ever gets launched... Uh, <laughs> you might get some validation for what you're putting together. Uh, yeah, yeah. There's uh, there's a number of experiments that are uh, currently sort of in process, and uh, hopefully at some point will will give us better data. But there's also sort of just a limit as to how good, you know. Again, we're we're limited by technology and the fact that this is just such a hard thing to try to do. Mm. So, do you in your field? Do you? Uh... Do you have to um, write grants for telescope time? Do you do a lot of, given the lack of theoretical, uh, the lack of uh, uh, empirical uh, data and a lot of, you know, the the theoretical mathematics and everything, do you actually require or do telescope time in in what you work on? I I don't. So the the experimentalists are the people who do that. But what I, I mean, I, I do follow, I do follow the results of the experiment, the experimentalists. So... So every mm. once in a while, mm-hmm. you know, uh, I think it's been a few years now, but back in 2018, uh, the Planck satellite released uh, un- uh, some of their data and have the- has this paper mm-hmm. ha- has a few papers on constraints on some of these models of the early universe. 
And so, so to me, I, I actually follow what is being done by these experimentalists, which isn't true of all string theorists, by the way. I mean, a lot, a lot of modern string mm. theory has sort of moved beyond attempting to relate string theory to the world, real world. And it's more concerned with just understanding hmm. string theory as sort of this abstract mathematical theory. Uh, and same thing with quantum field theory. Hmm. So there are a lot of more formal theorists that I work with who who really don't don't care about the experiments. But I, I'm sort of working on the intersection between string theory and cosmology. And so for me, I actually do follow at least what the experimental cosmologists are telling us based on their telescope hmm. experiments of the early universe. Uh, but I'm definitely not the person who's doing them myself. They would not, they wouldn't go well if I were involved. Let's just say that. <laughs> well, that's all right. Uh, everybody's got a place in, uh, in, 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 in God's kingdom for doing th- certain things. That's right. Yeah. That's right. Um, Tom, I, I, I want to briefly have your thoughts on something that, that, that I've always been fascinated by as well. And, and you can speak to this at, at whatever you wish, but, uh, it seems like no matter what kind of, uh, uh, science we're talking about, it seems like there is, um, it seems neglected, but it seems so obvious that that it requires a great deal of not just, people think, well, hard science and it's all just linear, logical, mathematical, but there's a great deal of creativity and imagination that is brought to bear. And I don't mean that in a in a in a flippant sort of way, like like oh, it's all just make believe, and you guys are just sitting around, you know, making stuff up. Um, but but that there really is a, a great deal of I would even say, uh, you know, Sean Carroll in his book, uh, um, the Big Picture, he calls his theory poetic naturalism. Uh, he makes an attempt to try to explain everything in the big picture, of course. But uh, how do you see the role of human imagination in in what you do and in general in the science, do you think that it's, it's there and and not talked about, or is it there and everybody realizes it? Uh, You know, it's like uh, Einstein crunching out equations on envelopes and people building telescopes. It seems like uh, imagination plays a great and a very important role in, in, in what you do. Would you say? I I think definitely. Yes. And I, I think most of us, I think most of us realize that, um, you know, there's sort of two two aspects I think to being a good physicist. One one is being able to just you know come up with answers to be able to to solve problems, but the other one is to be able to ask good questions. Mm-hmm. Uh, and in many ways, uh, I would say that that's really su- succeeding in this field is is a lot more about the latter. This is something that you know I uh, when I talk and when I. Uh, and mentoring, you know, beginning grad students, uh, you know, starting grad school is really tough in, in, well, in any field, I think, but, but especially in theoretical physics, because you, as an undergraduate, you do a lot of problems and you do problem sets. Mm -hmm. And these are problems that people have done thousands of times. And there's an answer key. And if you get stuck, you can go talk to the TA and they'll give you some help. And what you realize when you go to grad school is now all of a sudden, you're not just trying to do problems that people have done. You're trying to do problems that no one has ever done. You're trying to come up with ideas that no one has ever had. And in a sense, you're competing against people who yeah. have been doing this for 40 years, you know, who have been doing this for their whole lives and are experts yeah. in the world. And you need to come up with some idea that not one of those people has ever had. <laughs> oh, wow. No pressure. 
so so that's that's really what's difficult about research and it's i think i would say for me i'm actually i I would actually say that i'm i'm technically a lot less gifted than a lot of the people i work with like i'm just not as good at physics as they are if i'm being honest what i've Uh sort of i've been able to at least find some measure of success and i think a lot of it is just from the fact uh you know, I mean, a lot of it is figuring out what are the right questions to work on. Hmm. You need to be able to find some sort of problem, some sort of project which is actually doable, which you can actually, you know, complete in a reasonable amount of time. And yet, which is also interesting enough that other people are going to take this and actually care about it. Yeah. And so it really takes a sort of a lot bigger picture view to not just be able to, you know, get a problem from your advisor and go and work on it, but actually the sort of insight to... to Ask what are you know what are the interesting questions out there, and what are the things that I can actually do, and what's the overlap between those two things? Excellent. And so yeah, there really is a lot of creativity, and it's a lot more I think, like like artwork or you know like like a lot of uh, these more creative fields, and uh, yeah, so I think I think especially theoretical physics to really make progress, it, it, it takes a lot more artistry than than scientific knowledge. It's interesting. Tom, this idea of what you say of asking the right questions, that the very fabric of the cosmos seems to engender our inquiry. It's almost like the cosmos is telling us, it's like verbally telling us to ask, you know, to ask that, that, that built into our observation, uh, that, that the fabric of nature is is basically commanding us to ask questions. Um, and that makes sense because from a theistic perspective, specifically Christian, uh, Jesus is the Logos who spoke creation as we have in Genesis. However, God speaking, you know, what is when God says, let there be antelopes, what does that look like? I don't know. But, 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 but a verbal, word-oriented, word-made flesh, word-centered God, obviously to me that seems like why we are verbal uh, inquiring people. You look at the questions that people ask Jesus in the Bible. What do they want to do? They want to trap him. Uh, you know, who, who's, should we pay taxes? And Jesus says, give me a coin. And then he, he answers in a way that reveals the nature of their question was only to trap him, right? And then there are some people like the woman at the well who, who literally are asking questions because they want to know. And it seems like I run across in, in science, there's, there's people that really want to know, people that really want to sort of ask the questions to, to try to trap God out of it. And then there are people that are generally inquiring. They really would, you know, if God is the answer, the ultimate theory of everything, then, then I want to know that. And uh, so do you find when people are inquiring, do you find that there is a, a, a kind of general, have you ever thought about the, the nature of people's questions the spirit of the questions, I guess I'm getting at, that, that how do we finally know, in, in your discipline, how do you finally know what a good question is? Yeah, yeah. And, yeah, I mean, as, as you're talking about, I'm reminded of this this uh, this thought I've had before, which is that it, it's really wild. It, it's totally crazy that physics actually exists. Yes, I mean, you could you could imagine you could imagine so many different worlds where it doesn't, right? One is right. you could imagine that 
that just the law that people just aren't smart enough, you know? <laughs> I mean, as I mentioned, you know, it requires this knowledge of group theory and algebraic geometry and all of these things, which which is really advanced stuff. It's really advanced mathematics. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. you could easily imagine that, that humankind just wouldn't be smart enough to, that we would never become intelligent enough to be able to have, to do this sort of abstract reasoning. Right, right, right. Uh, you could also imagine that the laws of nature were just far more complicated, you know, that we can't, uh, that we, there's nothing we can do. And it's actually crazy, right, that we can actually use, we can come up with Newton's laws, which, which are, require much simpler mathematics mm-hmm. to describe physics for a while. And then as our technology develops to the point where we can understand, you know, particle physics and these things and quantum mechanics, now the mathematics also is, is, is stronger, right? Now, the mathematics for this more complicated physics is actually more complicated as well. Mm. And so now, but hey, you know, we also have math for that. And we have technology to be able to do the physics and to see that they go together. That's amazing. And you could imagine that our technology would never get to that place. You could imagine that the laws of physics would just be far complicated, way too complicated for us to understand them. You could imagine that the laws of physics would be far too easy, right? Maybe Newton's laws are just all there is. Mm -hmm. And there's nothing beyond Newton's laws. And we figure it out, you know, way way back in the time of Newton. And there's nothing else for us to do. It's really incredible that the physics is still just going on. Yes. And that yes. both the technology keeps improving and the 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 theory that we find that describes the, the new physics actually becomes more and more complicated as well. And so we actually develop new mathematics even to, to describe it. Hmm. So it, it's really incredible that all of this stuff even works. And as you say, it, I mean, it's almost like God just had like theoretical physicists in mind. Like, <laughs> I need to make sure that these people have jobs too. Absolutely. It's uh, like make sure that this stuff all works out for them. Yes. You know, yes. I definitely wouldn't, wouldn't, you know, base my whole worldview on this. But I think there is some sort of hint of, you know, that, that we really are part of part of what it means to be in the image of God is just is to be people who search for truth hmm. and and uncover it in the world around us. Hmm. And so, yeah, not just physics, but just all of science. It's really incredible. You know that this is sort of an aspect of of humankind and human nature that we can actually do science and and ask these questions and learn about the world around us. Mm. And I do think it's pointing us to to you know the the cultural mandate of Genesis that we're we're meant to you know to to understand the world around us and to create culture and technology and science and art and all of these things are, are part of God's uh, larger project and what He's doing with humankind here in this earth. Yeah, it's like uh, the final uh, book in the Narnia series, The Last Battle, when the children go through the portal and Narnia is uh, burned up and they go on. It's, uh, you know, Aslan's call to go further up and further in. And it seems like that is the way in which God has uh, designed creation. Great are the works of the Lord. They are studied by all who delight in them, the psalmist says, one of my favorite psalms. And then, of course, Psalm 19, the heavens declare the glory of God. On the firmament or the skies show forth his handiwork. And so the investigation of the physical world, I think we should expect it to be a little strange and uh, and, and a little unusual and a little foreign to our understanding. It uh, reminds me of Ecclesiastes in chapter 3 where uh, Koheleth, the preacher, says, you know, man, God has put eternity in the heart of man, but yet he will not find out everything that God has done from beginning to end. But that doesn't mean that we can't investigate what God has done in the here and now. And so fascinating, Tom, uh, hearing your insights. Uh, fascinating, fascinating stuff. I'm, I'm more uh, a fan of string theory now. Thank you. Oh, good. 
Good. <laughs> uh, one thing you could probably do for our audience is uh, to point us in a direction if somebody's more intrigued by what you've said in regards to string theory or uh, faith and science. Do you have any uh, favorite resources that you would uh, toward which you would you would guide people just getting interested in this? Sure. So, um, so on the topic of string theory, I think. I mean, sort of the standard book that most people, most lay people would go to is uh, The Elegant Universe by Brian Greene, which uh, I have read before, and I, and I think it's a pretty good introduction to string theory. Um, so yeah, I would, I would suggest that. I, as far as resources on science and faith, I think um, some of the best ones that I can uh, recommend uh, so for books, I think you mentioned uh, a couple of books by Luke Barnes and Grant Lewis, which are a little bit more technical, but uh, I still do think are, are really interesting books on physics, modern physics, and how it relates to our faith. Uh, I, I found that the book Where the Conflict Really Lies by Avin Plantinga, uh, who, I, who I mentioned earlier, is a really great book. And for me, with as a young Christian, was especially very foundational in helping me develop sort of a, a coherent picture of science and faith and how they go together. As far as free resources, there's a blog that I really uh, enjoy pointing people to. It's called Undivided Looking by Aaron Wall. So Aaron Wall is a uh, theoretical physics professor at Cambridge University. And also just a, a really serious and serious thinking Christian. And so I've, I've learned a lot from his blog awesome. and from conversations with him. Yeah. Much better physicist and a much better uh, uh, resource in many ways on this than I am. But uh, I would, yeah, definitely recommend you check out his blog called Undivided Looking. Uh, finally, as a shameless plug, I'll mention that I have a number of uh, articles and especially some interviews that I did with the Veritas Forum that you can find online. Uh, really, if you just look up my name. So, uh, so yeah, I would encourage, uh, encourage you to at least check out those videos as well. We will put links in the description of everything that Tom has shared um, for you to uh, check out and, and further pursue. Thank you, Tom. It has been a delight to talk to you and to hear how you've uh, become a Christian, how you've uh, integrated your faith, and how you continue to press on at Berkeley of all places. May the Lord bless you in that ministry shield. Yes, thanks a lot, Daniel. And again, really good to be here. Good Heavens is a production of Watchman Fellowship Incorporated, Arlington, Texas. For more information on this podcast or any of the other apologetic resources from Watchman Fellowship, visit watchman.org today. Be sure to check out the story of the cosmos, how the heavens declare the glory of God, with chapters written by both Wayne and Dan. It is a comprehensive down-to-earth Christian defense of the cosmos, featuring essays on how the heavens have influenced science, art, philosophy, history, and theology. The story of the cosmos is a wonderful addition to any bookshelf or coffee table. Filled with stunning images of the heavens, high-quality gloss paper, and in-depth essays, it can be a great gift for friends, family, and non-believers interested in the intersection of science, culture, and faith. <music>